All right, welcome back to the Experience Growth Podcast, where our collective mission is to build experiential businesses while, well, more importantly, living big experiential lives. Now, we do that ultimately by learning. Uh, Leaders or learners, and whether we're leading ourselves, we're leading our families, we're leading small businesses, or, or, or we're leading massive companies, being on the forefront of leading a movement of building experiential lives is our goal here. I am your host, Chris Suarez, and today's guest, Our very first guest, by the way, is a special one. Now, I couldn't think of anyone else to launch our guest series with. I met today's guest over a decade ago, and he put me on a path to to build a mission-based company and and really challenged my thinking at that time when I met him that first day. Today, we're going to spend some time with none other than the Mark Willis of, of Mark Willis Leadership and the Willis Family Foundation. But most in the business community will know him for his over decade long run as the president and CEO of the international real estate firm, Keller Williams Realty International. Now he is no stranger to scale and growing something big as he led that company to become the number one real estate franchise in North America with over 140,000 agents. Put in perspective, when he first joined that company, there were about a thousand agents worldwide. So he's going to share his business journey. He's going to share his spiritual journey. And he's even going to share a very personal journey that he went on. Uh, More importantly, he's going to share his path to creating an incredibly experiential life. He opens up as to to why he left a corporate job at the top. He he shares his thoughts on, on what Winston Churchill calls time in the wilderness, one of my favorite parts of our conversation. And make sure you listen to the end of this one as he shares a perspective-shifting conversation related to his late wife, Cindy Willis. Now, Mark Willis had a a very influential conversation with me over a decade ago, as I mentioned earlier, asking me some questions that I had never been before asked and, and really challenging me as to what the definition of being satisfied was in my world at that time. Now, those questions were were probably the first time I was exposed to really great leadership because here we define leadership as bringing people down a path to their preferred future. And that conversation really did change my path to the future that I'm living today. I enjoyed the conversation. I remember the meeting and I think I remember the first question I asked you which was, okay, Chris, you took out a couple of days of your time, you got on an airplane, you traveled across the country for some reason. Why did you come here? Yeah. And for a lot of people, I think that question is a little bit intimidating to ask. And yet it's the most important question you can ask. And having an openness to first understanding why someone is in front of you and asking that question in a compelling way, I think is where you begin to learn what you need to learn to do what you need to do to help them. And so really my MO at all times is can I help you? I think of the three questions that every follower asks, and I learned this from John Maxwell. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has heard this said one way or another. And yet it is, do you care about me? Can I trust you and can you help me? And you almost have to re-engineer that and start with, can I help you? Because 
when, when I'm talking to someone, when I'm across the table from them, I'm asking the question, can I help this person? How do I know I can help them? I can't really show them I care and I can't really build trust until I first know that I can actually do something that will make a positive difference in their lives. Does that make sense? It does. What's interesting, Mark, is, is usually I think we read them in the book the opposite way and we actually go about that. Let me demonstrate that I care. Let me earn your trust. And now can I help you? That's not how it works. That is not how it works. And that's why a lot of people fail. So I always start with, can I help this person? How do I know I can help them? What do they want? Am I sure they are clear about what they want? Because what I find is most people don't even know what's important to them. And a lot of us live a life that is somebody else's hypnotic rhythm rather than our own. One of my favorite books that I've read recently is Napoleon Hill's Lost Book, Outwitting the Devil. I don't know if you've read that. No, it's Outwitting the Devil. Outwitting the Devil. And it is such a great book, Chris, um, that he talks about this, this, this concept of the law of hypnotic rhythm. And I mean, that's a whole conversation. I could talk for an hour about the law of hypnotic rhythm, but I think a lot of, the, the reason I bring this up is I think a lot of people get into this hypnotic rhythm, living out somebody else's creation of who they want them to be rather than their own internal creation of who they want to be. And we begin living lives where we define what's important to us based on what other people want for us rather than what we want for ourselves. And then we get off track. So why do you think we do that, Mark? I think one is the people we surround ourselves with, the, the inner circle that we possess. I, I think that people who are, well, let me just say, I think that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who come to be served and there are people who serve. Now, usually people who serve others want to please others. People who come to be served want to be pleased. So if you fall into the category of being a pleaser like I am, you'll realize that at some point along the way that you're doing what other people want you to do rather than what really you might want to do left to your own devices. Mm. And I'm a server. I like pleasing people. And I actually get more juice from doing something for someone else than I do when I do it for myself. And I think it's more about internally the way that we're wired that determines it. I'm not judging people that are saying, hey, serve me. I think in most marriages, you'll have one who's the server and one who's the served. In a lot of partnerships, you'll have that. When you, when you look at that and you now really unpackaging and knowing who you are, I got to know you while you led um, Keller Williams Realty International. And what I find fascinating about that business model or that industry is uh, you led people not because they showed up for a paycheck, not because you were a, the biggest employer in the country, but you grew that organization to the largest franchise, uh, real estate franchise uh, in North America at the time, for over a decade as the president and CEO. 
But what's interesting is those people come by choice, not because you're giving them money, which is a completely different type of leadership. They have to plug in and, and want to be led by you. Why is that so different than perhaps CEOs of companies that have a hundred, you had 130, 140,000 agents, independent contractors. It's a whole nother level of leadership. What attracted that many agents to a leadership team, but, but a team led by you? Let me just, let me say on the front end that we did this together. I, I've often said that when you put Gary Keller, Mo Anderson, Mary Tennant, and me in the same room, you had the Eagles, you had the Beatles, you had a foursome of complementary talents where whatever we did, it was a collaborative effort. Now, I think at one point we got to, uh, we, when we got to be the largest in the world, we hit a point where I actually, for the first time, felt like the four of us, I didn't want the same thing that the others wanted. Okay. And I don't think that's good or bad. I think it's just what is. And yet I can tell you, we made beautiful music together and anything that we did that I would take credit for, I only was able to do it because of the great people that I worked with and the team that we had. Now, what you're talking about is executive leadership versus legislative leadership. See, an executive leader is somebody who has 100,000 employees who tells them all what to do. A legislative leader has to be reelected every single day by his constituents. So I played the game of being a legislative leader with a strategy in mind that was how can I help these people get what they want? And how can I teach them to think in a way that empowers them to do what they need to do so that they get what they want to get? And every day that became the way that I showed up. What do you want? How can I help you think in a way that you need to think to do what you want to do to get what you want to get? And it's, if you show up with that intention, see, I think intention is so important because every day I just go to my office with this intention. And when you show up with that intention, people know it and they know it's genuine and they know that it's not all me, my, mine, it's yours, it's ours. And together we're gonna to do more than, than we could do alone. And that inspires me, makes yeah. me happy, makes me smile. You wanna wake up in the morning and say, charge, let's go, let me help you out. What do you want? I, I think it was very obvious that you always led with intention and do you believe that intention has an attraction factor? Is that what caused people to want to be around you? You talk about the four, right? Your, your legislative leadership team, if you will. You were able to allow the people that were part of that organization and company into your inner circle. How do you do that? They felt that you and Mary and Mo and Gary were, were their inner circle. You talk about how important that inner circle was. How do you invite them into your inner circle? Chris, that's a great question. I have to really think about that one for a second. I think that, let's go back to what you said about intention and back to that conversation. And, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna share something that kind of, for me has been my way of helping people and my way of personally growing. So the majority of the books that I've read 
are books on spirituality, mm-hmm. not business. Now, I've read a lot of business books, but my favorite authors are Wayne Dyer, Deepak Chopra. Yeah. I love, uh, above all else, David Hawkins and Power Versus Force yeah. and the book Letting Go. I can tell you that there's not a moment where I don't have this map of consciousness in front of me. Wayne Dyer and all of these guys say that people can feel your intention and you can say something different from what you intend. And they know on some level, it may be unconscious, that what you're saying is false. And then they watch how you behave over time. So one of the things that I, I went around saying all the time was, hey, people don't care what you say they care about what you do and so i i just flipped that around in terms of my own understanding of myself and that is let's not let's okay the hardest person to lead is yourself why is that again the john maxwell training that i've had over the years shows up in a big way for me The reason you're the hardest person to lead is what? Because we judge other people by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. And yet, if you really want to know yourself, watch what you do. Don't watch your intentions. Because your intentions can mislead you. Your actions can't be argued with. I love that. So... I think that intention is one thing, actual um, behavior and the, the decisions that we make, the way that we treat people, whether or not we really listen or we really tell. Uh, one of my rules in life is ask, don't tell. And I led the company at all times by working from an ask, don't tell perspective. And then I have this very impatient style. We talked, we, you and I have done behavior together also. We, I remember validating your ADA 10 years ago. And as you may recall, I am a very low three and I believe you are too. Correct. So a low three creates kind of a tension of impatience at all times, needing to act with a lot of urgency. So I have this very impatient, fast-moving, urgent, action-oriented, natural behavior. I had to reel that in. I had to pull that three up artificially. I had to pull my patience up artificially because it wasn't natural. And so that, I think that's another part of the hardest person to lead is yourself. That impatience, Mark, and, and that personality profile I have found in the last 20 years, it's difficult to be still as well. It's difficult to, in the moment, experience life. And, and yet from afar, right, from the outside looking in, even while you were growing and scaling an, an enormous business, it appeared as if you were able to compartmentalize that and, and, and focus on living with your family, with friends, with loved ones, while you were scaling. Is that the case? And if so, how, how did you do that? How did you, with a, that low vector three, that impatience, that charging mentality, be able to take a step back and, and reflect on, 
Like this isn't the only thing that's important in life. What, what helped you do that? Let's start with stillness. If we go back to the way I was raised a Christian scientist. That's, and I'm so grateful for that background. I'm, I'm not really a practicing Christian scientist today. I'm more of a, just the, that religion is, it's a little bit archaic. And yet it has such great meditative stillness. And just in the weekly Bible lesson, in having to read something that prepared your mind and created a habit of really looking to a higher source for your guidance. And I could go on about that, but one of my, my favorite Bible verses growing up is uh, Psalms 46, be still and know that I am God. And I have worked very hard to practice stillness because it did not come naturally to me. I had to learn to meditate. I had to learn to breathe properly because I have such a need for action and I'm so naturally impatient. So I've worked on that muscle for years and I don't think that it's hard to tap into. It just takes time. It takes practice and it takes a, a daily commitment to just slow down, to breathe and be experiential. And then ask yourself, what do I think I should do? Now, one of the best experiences I had in the year 2017 was I got to spend a day with Michael Singer and Michael wrote The Surrender Experiment and he wrote the book, The Untethered Soul. Yeah. And Michael Singer said something to me that impacts me every single day still. Now, two and a half years later, or a little bit, yeah, yeah, three years later. He said, Mark, he said, just slow down, breathe, get still. And when you can find a level of calmness, ask yourself the question, what do I know in my soul, in my heart that I should do? without avoiding what I don't want to do, such that if I were to actually do what I know in my heart, in my soul, in my total being, what I should do, and I actually did it, I would be in harmony with my divine creation. And he said, if you'll just do that and pay attention to what you're being told, you're actually following a path of inspiration and not obligation. So I think in order to serve others, we have to work from what inspires us, not what obligates us. And Wayne Dyer talks about living a life of inspiration, not a life of obligation. So what I try to do at all times is I try to stay inspired, which is in spirit. And I try to get still enough to have awareness about where I am. And usually that involves some emotional work, which is, am I, am I feeling fear? Am I feeling anger? Am I feeling craving and desire? Am I being prideful? Am I getting attached to outcomes? 
Am I working from a position of good, strong, courageous, willing, sort of uh, serving behavior? Or am I working from fear, anger, pride, and desire? And I pay attention to my intention in a way where if I'm feeling something that is nurturing my smaller self rather than my higher self, I try to acknowledge it, not make it good or bad, not make it right or wrong, but just say, that's, that's not for me, and I'm going to let it go. Let me ask you a question, Mark. You mentioned earlier that you got to a place, and, and as frame of reference, when you got to that place, you were at the top, yeah. right? You were running the largest company, real estate company, right, in, in, in North America. You had been positioned and acknowledged as one of the top 10 most powerful, interesting word, powerful and influential leaders in the industry. And, and you said that you wanted something different. Did that wanting something different have anything to do with that self-introspection that you're talking about right now? Quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. Actually, power has never been my drive, Chris. Freedom is my drive. And if we go back, like I can tell you that in my early 30s, I made a decision. And that was I was going to make as much in equity income as I made in job income. And at that time, I was making, I don't know, 400000 a year. So I thought, okay, I just want to get to 400000 a year in equity income so that if I chose not to do my job, I'd be able to sustain my lifestyle. And I lived my life that way for 20-something years. Hmm. And one day I looked up and I'd hit every goal, every material goal I had set. And to be completely transparent, honest, and authentic, I had not set a new set of goals when I hit those goals. And sometimes I wonder, I look back and I, I ask myself the question, if I had done like I always did before, and if I had actually set a different plateau of goals, a higher, newer plateau of goals, would that, would that have re-engaged me? Because honestly, I, I just became a little bit disengaged. And I'm just being truthful here. Yeah. I had everything that I, I thought I ever wanted. And I, I just felt like it was time for me. And I'd always worked my whole life. I never stopped. And yeah, I had a great life. I had, I had I, I'm blessed with a wonderful family. I have a lot of dear friendships. I have a lot of long-term friendships that I've held on to basically my whole life. And I treat people well. I don't think I've ever mistreated anybody, to my knowledge. And if I have, I go back and try to make right. But maybe the one person that I didn't put first was myself at that time. And so when I left KW, I hired a transitional coach. And he said something to me that really helped me a lot. He said, Mark, you've been living your life as though your first responsibility is to everybody else. And really how you need to live your life is as though 
your first responsibility is to yourself so that you can be the best that you can be. And then you have your second responsibility, which is to use what you've learned to yeah. help others. And I think I've made my first responsibility to others my whole life. And I had to go through this period of making my first responsibility to me. I know you, and I talked about the Ryan Holiday book, Stillness is the Key. I feel like my years after KW were my years in the wilderness. Ryan Holiday talks about that with respect to Winston Churchill and his political exile after the run in the 20s and then in the 30s, having his decade in the wilderness. And he used that time to paint, to really live and to clarify what mattered to him and to learn. And I think it was his using that time to think about how he could first be responsible to himself so then he could be more responsible to others. And he used a statement that I love. He said that in that everybody must come, every man must come from civilization, but he also must go back to the wilderness. We're all social beings, but if you've accomplished a lot and you have a little break after that, you have the opportunity to go create psychic dynamite. And I feel like that's what this period has done for me. So I, I think I just accept the journey of learning and growing and being the best that I can be so I can help others be the best that they can be. What's interesting is most people think about Churchill. I know both you and I have, have done just a lot of just research and reading about him as a leader, even more recently. And, 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 and people look at all of his just incredible leadership skills. And, and when he was in these roles of position, and if I use that word again, power, right, from the outside looking in. And yet when when we really read about him, people forget or don't even realize that there was that decade where he, he spent most of it alone. He talked about it being a period of isolation and meditation. And that's when he started painting and he started right building. He wasn't a builder, but he, he built right homes out of stones on this. And the, the last part of his quote, you just used that phrase. And I, I don't want, I'd love to get your perspective on it because he said it is that process by which psychic dynamite is made. What is psychic dynamite? Dynamite? Yeah, well, what is psychic well, let's, talk, let's start with psychic. That's where you become really aware. And then dynamite is where I think of dynamic. I think of something that is going to clear the way for the highest expression to show up. But if you just stay on that treadmill and you just keep going mechanically and you don't have that period of isolation and reflection and meditation, you hit your peak and everything is downhill from that point. But as you go downhill, if you can be quiet and if you can be reflective and if you can listen and get still, you create that awareness and that awareness creates the opportunity for another climb and you get a higher peak still. And that peak may be business. That peak could be philanthropy. It could be teaching. 
It could be a lot of different things. For me, moving forward, what I want to do is I want to teach. I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. And I love people. I've always cared so much about having impact on helping other people. So that's my focus moving forward. And that's, I think that's what that psychic dynamite created for me. Just an awareness of what my purpose is. Do you think that could have happened or would have happened? And I know that might be a tough question. Would it have happened if you didn't take that break? If you didn't go into the wilderness? I think I'd be a byproduct of someone else's uh, creation rather than my own. And I'd always choose to be a byproduct of my own creation and not someone else's. And I had to get still and get a little isolated to be able to get clarity about who I am and what matters. Yeah. Because materially, my needs are all satisfied. I think we tend to think, and we see this all the time. I've, I've seen it so many times with myself. I'm, I'm just make fun of myself here for a minute. But it's like when I was on that climb to acquire as much as possible, one of the things that motivated me the most was owning a private jet. And you, you think that when you get that private jet that you're going to finally be satisfied. Let me tell you, you just get a different level of buyer's remorse. Because we think that material things satisfy spiritual needs. But material things do not satisfy spiritual needs, Chris. And so we set ourselves up for disappointment. And I had built a life, I think, where I had a lot of material things. And I needed to create a little more spiritual depth on this journey to be able to fully do everything that I crave doing purpose-wise for my life. And I, I'm really grateful for that awareness that only spiritual experiences satisfy spiritual needs. And obviously I'm, I, I look at myself as, both the physical being and the spiritual being, but my eternal nature is my spiritual nature. My temporal nature is my material nature. It's that search for happiness, right? That ultimately we, we oftentimes wind up on paths searching for it. And yet just one of those simple verses, right? Happy is the man conscious of their spiritual need. It takes that first step of being conscious of it and then filling it and fulfilling it, which is the simple equation towards happiness, which, which we, we see you doing, which is so awesome. I would say attempting. I don't know that we ever get there because I think it's a journey and I think it takes a lot of work. One of, one of the things that I've said recently, I have this book coming out and the, book, the title of the book is The Call to Evolve. And I think that in that call to evolve journey, what we have to understand is that we are always evolving. And so the most important work we do is the work we do on ourselves so that we can actually be authentically aligned with our purpose and authentically growing and experiencing life in a way where it's fruitful and it's rewarding, but it's not always easy. I've got to tell you that I decided on the title of that book when 
I found out that my wife was terminally ill. Mm -hmm. I thought this moment is really my call to evolve as a human being because the purpose of life is to keep on living. And a life worth living is a life that is always evolving, a life that's always growing and in a way that nurtures growth and a personal evolution so that we, we can actually be our best selves. And I think that starts with awareness. That's why I pull out this map of consciousness every chance I get. And it starts with awareness about where we are because if we don't manage that side of it, we can't evolve, it's impossible. You think, Mark, that, that oftentimes we, we think that the evolution will happen naturally as opposed to by our design? I think that's true of the majority of, yeah, yeah, I think for most people, that's absolutely the way it is. And so then you mentioned that call to evolve really came from, you know, after the fact that you found out your wife was terminally ill. How did, why was that the call? It's hard to explain for someone who hasn't been there. And yet the purpose of life is to keep living. And to live a life by design, you're going to have to do a lot of course correction and a lot of personal work to keep that personal evolution moving in, in the direction that your purpose calls for. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I had a lot to give and I want to give it. And you can't give without continuing to grow and evolve. And it was a tough experience. Life is not about what happens to you in the end. It's about how you respond to what happens to you. That, that's what evolution is. Uh, one of the things that um, I, I want all of our audience to, to recognize is that your call to evolve there is so incredibly well aligned with our mission of living experientially because you went out and started a foundation, right? The Willis Family Foundation with your family right. in honor of your wife, Cindy. And, and it, what I love about the foundation, Mark, is this that there are lots of foundations and there are a lot of people working aggressively on, on figuring out how do we find a cure for, for cancer. And yet for those that have it or those that wind up with it, I believe that all of us deserve experiential lives and lives can be more experiential if we had found out or we find out things in advance. And so your foundation is based on right, canine early cancer detection which it's hard to say out loud, but many of our listeners are either experiencing this now or have experienced it now. And with early detection, our loved ones could continue living experientially or have just had a more experiential life while dealing with their illness. And I think it's, it's ridiculously important from someone who has been affected by this personally the work you're doing there, I, I just, I, I would implore all of our listeners to, to reach out, learn about what you're doing and donate to your foundation as well. Thank you, Chris. I do. I'm, if I can, I'm going to take a few minutes just to tell the story because it. it's an important story. And I'm, I want to share it for anyone who can hear this, where it might have an impact on their lives or the lives of someone else that they may know. 
my, my experience was on December the 5th of 2018, I'm at a friend's birthday party and he's a radiologist. And my wife says, Hey, in the shower this morning, I felt a little lump on my breast. And he said, Oh, it's probably nothing. Just come in on Monday and we'll, we'll get a mammogram. She had just had a mammogram uh, in April of the same year. So this April, 2018, she had a mammogram latest technology, 3D mammogram, and she was 100%, like, nope, no problem. Eight months earlier. December 2018, eight months later, she feels a, a, a lump in her breast and finds out that she's gonna be in surgery four days later. The surgery occurs, not only does she have a huge tumor in her breast, but all 17 left nodes on her left side were devoured by cancer. So how is it that somebody has a clean mammogram in April and then the same year, eight months later in December, has all 17 lymph nodes devoured by cancer and it was breast cancer. The origin of the cancer was breast cancer. It wasn't lymph, lymphatic cancer. Hmm. And then find out a week later that her entire skeletal system was eaten up by cancer. And so I, we go to MD Anderson, which is one of the leading cancer treatment facilities in the world. And the, the oncologist there tells me two months after we start treatment, Mark, the truth is, is cancer has been in her body 15 to 20 years. And I said, then it couldn't have been breast cancer because she said all these mammograms. How in the world could that cancer have been in her body and she gets clean mammograms every year because she got a mammogram every single year. Now, every female listener right now, please pay attention to this because my wife was so religiously committed to getting an annual mammogram. Literally from the time we were married in her early 20s, she, she was obedient about doctors, the advice, that you get an annual checkup. And so I, they sent us home and said, okay, she's, you need to get hospice because there's nothing more we can do. This is just a couple months into this. And you think breast cancer is gonna be, they say, okay, breast cancer is really treatable. And then we have this experience. So I'm sitting with a couple of doctor friends after Cindy is sent home to die. I am so upset. I said, I'm so angry with your profession. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how we could have done what we were supposed to do every year at Clean Mammograms and then get told that there's nothing more that the medical profession can do and that the cancer had been in our body 15 years. And my good friend, radiologist, says, Mark, the really the greatest hope for early cancer detection that exists is not oncology. It's cancer-sniffing dogs. And it's, it's really compelling. And the research out there is showing that dogs are the best source for early cancer detection. So I did some research and here we are two months later. My wife is, I've done research and I had a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> and I go in, this is the last couple of weeks of her life and I go in to kiss her. She had round the clock caregivers. And obviously they had taken over the bedroom. So I'm sleeping in another part of the house mm -hmm. for the most part. And I go in to kiss her goodnight. 
And when I walk in the room, I go, what's that smell? And then I kiss her forehead and I tasted cancer. And I said, is that smell and the taste on my lips? I asked the caregiver, I said, is that the cancer? She said, yeah. And I said, is that what the dogs? Yes. And so my wife passes away and I think, okay, I want to help others. And if awareness about dogs and their ability to smell cancer layers, multiple layers deep is real, then we've got to get behind this and create awareness. And I've got a pretty big network that I can begin to work in terms of just educating. And so we created the Willis Family Foundation. Anybody who wants to go to that, our foundation, there's a website, willisfamilyfoundation.org. We are aligning with the University of Pennsylvania, uh, which is where the leading research center for canine cancer detection is. And there's a doctor that actually was introduced to me by two different sources, one of them being one of my friends at KW, Ashley Lund, met Dr. Otto during the recharge event in Philadelphia, ran into her like in an airport and knew about our foundation. And then another one being from my niece, who's a large animal vet, who had found Dr. Otto on her own. And so we're aligned with her research department to hopefully get to a point where she can have a machine in every internal medicine office in the world that mimics the olfactory abilities of canines. So that, and this is a huge undertaking. So we're supporting her. Right now, universities are shut down. So we're in a bit of a hiatus, and yet it's, it's still full speed ahead and everything that we can do to create awareness and, and raise so that we can support Dr. Otto and her work. I just want you to know that after this conversation, our charity will, will make a donation to your charity. Experience Giving will, will make a donation to your foundation. And we'll send, the, we'll send that link out um, in the show notes as well. And Mark, um, just thank you. Thank you for, for being willing to share parts of your journey. And actually, in this interview, more parts of you than even the journey um, and how you think. And you've been a, a thought leader and someone that it's interesting, I go back, it is evident every single day that you wake up looking to please and serve others because you've done that for, for over a decade that I've known you personally. And, and I'm excited uh, for, for that future after you've come out of the wilderness to, to watch that leadership journey. I'm excited about the upcoming book that we will make sure that our entire community is exposed to and, and gets a copy of. I will personally make sure that happens. And also I'm looking forward to support your foundation now and in the future as well. So just a million thank yous. 